0: Happy Monday, and welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is April 23rd, 2018, joined by Michael Warren and J.V. Last of the Weekly Standard. Can I call you J.V. or do you want to be called Jonathan? I take it normally I go by JVL. J.V.L. Actually,
1: yeah, almost everybody calls me J.V.L. Is okay, that true, I'm, Mike? I'm, yeah, that's, that's... Yeah, I mean, I'm,
0: behind my back, they
1: call me other things, I'm sure.
0: Other
2: things, but yeah, J.V.L. to your face, definitely.
0: Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna exercise the the prerogative of being the host by talking about a couple of things that absolutely obsessed me over the weekend, including this picture from the Bush funeral, Barbara Bush's funeral, and of course, uh, I'm sure everybody has seen it. There's there's Laura Bush and George W. Bush standing next to Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and Michelle Obama and Melania Trump, and there's uh, George H. W. Bush sitting in the foreground. It's a remarkable picture of what we used to well i don't know is this uh, is this too nostalgic where people could be significantly um at odds with one another politically but there was a level baseline of civility in which they could interact with one another and and you look at that picture and the absence of donald trump is just so dramatic it makes a statement Do you see why i'm obsessed about this yeah, I sure do. I'm staring at the picture. I'd never seen
1: this before 30 seconds ago, and I am kind of mesmerized by it, too. It's it's like the American politics version of the Oscar selfie with Ellen DeGeneres and <laughs> Bradley Cooper and... Who else was in that thing? It was do you remember was, this one? Uh, yeah, oh, it was yeah.
2: like uh, Lupita Nyong'o. There was like a lot of people in there, and yeah. then, which ended up being a, an advertisement for Samsung, by the way. But that's not well, no
0: part about. of me is is of course you know deeply cynical about you know politicians who you know will, will will attack one another in public and then and then pretend to be friendly in private or or the other way around. Um, but in this particular case, there's you know funerals are, are an odd are, are an odd case because they there's the element of civic ritual. But there's also something very deeply personal about it. I mean, you you have, you know, George W. and obviously Jeb, who's not there, who's who just lost their mother. Um, George H. W. Bush has lost the wife, you know, wife he he's had for more than seventy years, and with whom he was obviously deeply in, in love. So it's a very very personal event as as well. So, I, I I'm I'm not I, I don't think it was a bad decision for Donald Trump to to uh, to not come. And in in fact, there was no way. That he could have showed up at that funeral was there. There was just no way that it would have been appropriate for him to have shown up.
2: And I, I think it was the wishes of the family, um, of course, for, for him not to show up. I mean, for based on the things he said about uh, Jeb and and other things during the campaign. But I mean, there's there's some... he
1: accused George W. Bush of being a war criminal. That's right. I mean. <laughs> So but but there's a difference here
2: because, you you know, would you you have to wonder, would would this have been, you know, if this had happened 10 years earlier uh, with uh, Barack Obama uh, as president, who had run really, really hard against uh, George W. Bush's legacy and in many ways could thank uh, George W. Bush's uh, mistakes in the eyes of the uh, public uh, for for being the president, I think. I don't think it would have been that way. Um, I think Trump is is just different. He's sort of a man apart uh, in that way. But also, look, the, the presidency sort of it's a very small club, and it's one of these things where you look at that that photo, for instance. Bill Clinton beat uh, George H. W. Bush in 1992, and for years, I think George. This has been written. George Bush was was sore about it, obviously, if you can believe it. Um, of course, but they became they became. Friends and friendly, and in fact, I think Clinton calls himself sort of the other the other uh, black sheep, Bush, you know, son. Um, and 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 that's kind of the way the presidency, um, at least on this personal level, kind of brings these people who who disagree politically together. And you do kind of wonder: it is, it, Trump is so sort of a radical departure from kind of this the the the, the tradition of. Uh, presidential service and kind of the way he conceptualizes it that he could ever really be a part of that fraternity. Well, he's
0: crossed lines. And, and that's the key thing. You know, your, your, your point about you know, how, how vigorously Barack Obama ran against George W. Bush, uh, Bill Clinton uh, defeated George H.W. Bush. And yet it was and and you know, and correct me if you think this is naive, or or if I'm being selective in my memory here. But th- those those attacks were political. They were within the normal range of political disagreements and attacks. Whereas Trump does not recognize those. He goes after the family members. He makes the attacks personal. Uh, he uses terms that 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 frankly are very very difficult to walk back. It would be. It would have been the height of hypocrisy for him to have, you know, you know, put his arm around Hillary Clinton or stood there smiling with with his thumbs up. You know, there's a difference in politics uh, between, say, I fundamentally disagree with your domestic social policy versus I believe you should be locked up and sent to jail because I believe you are a crook. And and that that's one of the differences, I think, in American politics. And and you, you sort of see the advantages or the The strength of civility, but also the price we've paid for abandoning that.
1: Yeah, there's also a difference here. I mean, I would give Bill Clinton a lot of credit for the relationship he had with H.W. because Bill Clinton made that relationship happen. Like he's one of these needy guys who just wants to be liked by everybody. And he he basically just hugged George H.W. Bush until H.W. Bush loved him back. You know, I mean, this is, this is a real—it was a thing for him. He was going to create a relationship there no matter what. And it worked, and I think that that has actually had very nice ramifications throughout uh, our, our politics since then. But this is a thing that— you, so Trump has rapprochements with people that he's had disagreements in the past with, but they're always done from a place of dominance, and submission, not a place of friendship or even fake friendship. So you look at you know like he Ted and Ted Cruz, Cruz bit, are buddies now. He out. and Marco yeah. Rubio are buddies now, but they're not really buddies now. That you know it is all tied up with dominance and submission, and it is different. This is what I, I mean. Trump is is not like any other politician we've ever had, because his instincts are the instincts of a strong man, not the instincts of a political leader. Political leaders are needy people. And I I say this really not with any value judgments in it. Political leaders are typically people who are incredibly needy, who want to be loved and are always looking to add constituents and make people love them. And Trump is much more of, and I, I say strongman only for lack of a better word, I don't really mean to attach a value judgment there, but he is much more about the politics of dominance. And that's, that's something which is new in America, relatively new in America. I suppose you could probably say that Lyndon Johnson was interested in the politics sure. of dominance, uh, oh, yeah. but is reasonably new in modern America in modern American politics.
0: Can I say well, one more? The, the other reason why this picture, of course, is, is, uh, is mesmerizing again, you have Laura Bush, George Bush, you know, the, the, the Clintons, the, the Obamas. And then there's Melania Trump standing there, and, and she's got a, this very unusual look on her face. Have you seen that look on her face before? She's smiling. <laughs> and, and, and I actually tweeted this out. I'm trying to imagine Melania goes back home last night or over the weekend and says to and says to Donald, yeah, I really did have a good time. And they were really all really very, very nice. And what does Donald Trump say? A bunch of losers. uh, well, exactly, or something. I don't well, know. I mean, assuming that, that that he actually will ask her a, about the experience, but it must have been an an extraordinary moment for her to be sitting there. And there's that other picture of of uh, Barack Obama sitting next to her at the funeral and saying something that is also making her mouth do that strange thing, smiling. Um, <laughs> and 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 for her to go back and realize these are the people that we have, you know, insulted. We have. Uh, you know talked about you know how crooked and lying and dishonest uh and uh, all of the the the, all of the limited range of insults that donald trump has for them and and she's now met them and and seen them in a completely different again I, i i i don't try to get into donald trump's head i can't possibly get into melania trump's head but it's an interesting psychological picture there.
2: Yeah, I think so, and and this kind of relates to one other thought I have about this photo and this and this funeral, which is, um, you notice there's another president who's not there. It's Jimmy Carter and his wife Rosalind, yeah. and um, you know I think there there were some legitimate reasons why they weren't there. She was apparently traveling, and he uh, he's had health problems, and and he's had other engagements, but. I think it's a perfect example of uh, actually uh, of an example of this happening before, which is Jimmy Carter has always been separate um, from this other fraternity of presidents. Mm. Um, there's a photo. Fo- there was a photo from uh, I, it was there was a presidential all living presidential lunch during the Obama administration, in which. Um, Jimmy Carter is photographed sort of uh, there's literally a, 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 a gap between him and the rest of the group um, in a way that and I, I think in, in some way, in so many ways, Carter is different than Trump. But in this way, I think they're they're similar, which is that they don't really uh, what J. Vale you were talking about sort of the neediness. Carter doesn't really have that neediness either. Yeah. He kind of has the aloof um uh, aloofness of a guy who feels like he was wronged by getting, um, you know, uh, who, by not being reelected president, that he was sort of smarter than everybody else, and he he really has gotten a bum rap. And actually, he's a better person because I don't know if you know he builds houses for poor people and he's such uh, a good person. He's a very good person who likes to meet with the best dictators people, dictators, and stuff. So, but so this <laughs> is a similar way like there, there, there is this weird um, community. Uh, among this this group of presidents and their spouses that um that Trump is not the only one who's out of it and as 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 we point out Melania seems to be fitting right in I, because I think she was not a part of those um those attacks on on the Bushes and the Clintons she's she's very much not into the politics of this she she's she, kind of a she, lovely well-adjusted gotta, human being exactly actually. she's a pleasant person
0: so as far as who, i can tell. who just made some bad choices okay jvl again on on my obsessions over the weekend and we we had talked about this on a previous podcast kevin williamson formerly of national review formerly of the atlantic had a lengthy piece in the wall street journal talking about his his experience uh, being attacked by the Twitter mobs uh, by well, the entire social media mobs um, that resulted in his firing from Atlantic and I, I you you blogged over the weekend that, that people needed to go read it. I was struck by a couple of things including the fact that, despite all of the commentary about Kevin Williamson and whether or not women should actually be hanged for having an abortion, that no one had actually reached out to him for clarification with the exception of one reporter from Vox. Besides that, nobody picked up the phone, nobody direct uh, tweeted him, nobody texted him, nobody even emailed him. I thought that was extraordinary.
1: You know, I guess it's a sign of the difference we have in perspectives on the world that I was surprised that somebody from Vox called him. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I read that passage and I thought hey somebody from Fox picked up the phone good on them I wouldn't have expected that this is this is the world that we live in I mean this this was a modern uh i I don't know what I'm looking for but it was just an organized campaign it was a witch hunt to get rid of him and it was done on long it was done for reasons that are wholly cynical um which is that there is a coterie of people who believe that certain institutions should be off limits to anybody outside of their own personal political proclivities. And by going after somebody like Kevin Williamson, they are able to then make the price so high that nobody else in Jeff Goldberg's position will ever do it again. And I find this depressing for lots of reasons but mostly because Jeff Goldberg doesn't seem to understand who actually holds the power in this. Jeff Goldberg is the he's the editor of the Atlantic Monthly. It's one of the two or three most important magazines not just in America today but in the history of America. And if he fired everybody in that building this afternoon, he could have everyone there replaced by tomorrow morning without undergoing any drop in quality whatsoever. And he could even probably pay people half of what they're paying right now. This is like at Harvard or Yale where, you know, you – if whenever they're – remember the the big Nick Christakis brouhaha at, at Yale two years ago or whatever? I came away from that and I thought to myself, I don't get it. They could – Simply expel every single kid who is acting badly and replace them the next day because there are thousands and thousands of people who are incredibly smart with sixteen hundred on their SATs dying to get into Yale who didn't the first time waiting to get in. The same is true for working at The Atlantic, and the fact that Jeff Goldberg doesn't understand where the real power dynamic here is is incredibly depressing.
0: You also highlighted a passage from his uh, from from his essays about the paranoid style of the liberal mind that they all are convinced how marginal they are. And um, what Williamson wrote was, we should all be so marginalized. If you want to know who actually has the power in our society and who is actually marginalized, ask which ideas get you sponsorship from Google and Pepsi and which get you fired.
1: Yeah. it's you know, the, the great thing about this piece is that if you had taken off the first 500 words, which were about his own experience with The Atlantic, this would have been a great piece for The Atlantic. And, you know, I would say that it's a shame and that the readers of The Atlantic are being shortchanged. But, you know, on the other hand, this is just the world we live in now. And nobody at The New Yorker or The Atlantic will ever go out of their way to try to hire a great writer who happens to be politically heterodox again.
0: Uh Michael Warren, you were on CNN yesterday. Good job, uh, but that meant you were over at CNN when they had a rather remarkable exchange. And and I and I and I, I say this advisedly that even by the standards of of, of back and forth, you know, cable TV um, punt, punditry, the exchange between Kellyanne Conway and CNN's uh, Dana Bash, I thought was uh, I thought was kind of been a class by itself. Dana Bash asked. Near the end of this interview, what seemed to be a relatively modest question, asking Kellyanne Conway, wh- what is with your husband's tweets? George Conway is very well-known, very well-connected uh, Republican lawyer in, in Washington who has been tweeting things that have been, um, I would say, you know, quite critical of the Trump administration. And Kellyanne Conway's reaction was um, – I would say in fuego, uh, including (laughs) what some people have interpreted as threats to bring up the 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 conduct of the spouses of CNN folks. So give me give me your sense of of that exchange and and what happened there. First of all, do you think that Dana Bash crossed any lines by asking Kellyanne Conway about her husband's tweets?
2: Uh, no, I don't. I mean, this is something that um, I, I think Dana sort of prefaced it by saying, you know, this is something everybody in Washington is talking about, which sort of in the circles of politics, media, the legal com- you know community here in it's Washington, true. which is relatively <laughs> relatively small. It is true. Yes, everybody has been noticing this. Um, George Conway is not just, um, you know, not just some anonymous person. He was, uh, as you said, sort of involved in Republican legal circles. It was actually in talks to join the Justice Department at one point or Early on in the Trump administration, um, uh, and 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 so that is the context at which people are looking at these tweets from from him, which he's very sort of critical, not just of the the administration and the White House, but kind of making some um, some some sharp comments about uh, the president's legal problems. So it's he's mm-hmm. sort of coming at it from a from a little bit of a perspective of authority. So um, I, I think if I watch the video correctly, Dana's um, Dana's intent was to kind of um, uh, was to titillate a little bit with that question and sort of say, OK, here's the question that everybody's wanting to know um, and and just kind of see how Kellyanne would respond, Would she um, it, it, I think it's, a, it's sort of a great, a great. Uh, trait of a question for a journalist to ask a, uh, somebody political, yeah. which is, um, put them in a bind. And, and is she going to defend the president? Is she going
0: to well, defend and her and husband? It got, and, it got, and it got under her skin. See, yes. this is what surprised me. Kellyanne Conway, you know, is is not new to the rodeo. She's been around a long time. She had to know that this question could have could have been asked. And it's an easy question to answer. Yeah, I was going to say,
1: is not this a softball? Right. It's Don't it's just say James Carville, right. Mary Matlin. This is, you know, these things happen. Right. <laughs> but instead, she, she, went off, she, she said that
2: she could not believe that CNN was asking such a question um, that it really was uh, uh, spoke to how low CNN was willing to go. Um, it seemed to uh, almost rattle Dan. I don't. Th- I think she expected something like that, uh, uh, like a, a Carvel Madeline uh, kind of explanation. Um, I-, I noticed that, uh, as well that she didn't really defend. Uh, her husband on it. Not uh well. she 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 just kind of said that it was that it was totally out of bounds and kind of implied that it was um it was a gender attack, which is interesting because Dana is a woman as well. Um and uh it, and and so uh, I thought and it basically was basically
0: then saying that now everybody's spouse was fair game including and there were, there was a moment there where they're like oh, hey, you, you really want to go there. You want to go there. So, you know, are are your spouses fair game. And and, and that was so, again, I want to come back to this, that there was a five-second easy answer to this, you know, the, the James Carville, Mary Madeline answer. Every married couple in the world would have, would have said, yeah, absolutely, I'm not responsible. You know, you know, husbands and wives disagree, laugh it off, move on. But she didn't give that, and she decided to escalate it. And I, I don't know. To me, that suggested that this was a far more sensitive, delicate issue than I would have otherwise. I, I, would have, uh, I would have thought she would have been able to simply shrug it off. Yeah,
2: it, 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 I think you, you're touching on something that, that could very well be true. This could be a sore subject between the president and Kellyanne. Um, and, you know, Kellyanne is being considered, her star is supposedly rising again within the White House, had been considered, may still be considered for the communications director job, which she now wants. Um, I think after saying she didn't want it at the beginning of the White House, so that's neither here nor there. Um, she uh, escalated it, which the Trump White House has a fine tradition of doing on CNN. Uh, Stephen Miller escalated a conversation with uh, with Jake Tapper, right. and and, for, and they get points with their that's with right. Their audience that's that's and that's where I am going right? with that. This is this is a way to sort of uh, 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 gain favor with the most important TV viewer in in the world, um, and so that's that's kind of how I interpreted it. But I agree with you. It was there, there was there's an easier way um, uh, to, to deal with this, but the Trump White House never seems to take that easier way.
0: And to her credit, Dana then came back and said, look, you're talking about a president who has never hesitated going after the spouses of people he doesn't like, <laughs> right. you know, going after Ted Cruz's wife, being the most famous, going after Andrew McCabe's wife. He's obsessed. And based on that track record, maybe what you just said there, Michael, um, is the explanation, because you can imagine um, Donald Trump. Uh, making uh, Kellyanne Conway quite uncomfortable by raising, well, what is your husband doing? What? Look at what your husband is, is saying here. How can you defend this sort of thing? Um, and again, there's an explanation that's easy, but probably doesn't play well in this particular Oval Office.
2: Yeah, I think that's right.
0: Um, okay, let's, uh, let's actually now, we've, we've gone almost 20 minutes into this without talking about anything really substantive. <laughs> uh, over the weekend, uh, the president had many, uh, had, had quite a, a tweet storm, but uh, early on um, made claims about the North Korean negotiations that raised a lot of eyebrows, suggesting that North Korea, which had announced that it was suspending its testing, had committed to or was open to denuclearization. And uh, Michael, as you pointed out, That's not the case.
2: Right. And we should sort of preface this by saying denuclearization is. Uh, kind of a jargony word that um, means different things to, to whoever you're talking with. Um, but essentially the idea is, is what what is contained in the word, which is that North Korea will get rid of its nuclear weapons. Um, that's not what uh, uh, Kim is uh, uh, Kim's regime has said, according to their state TV, he was going to do. He was going to shut down the weapons testing site and the program that tests the weapons. Well, there's a lot of wiggle room there. Um, we should stipulate as well that any claim from Kim, um, just like claims from his father, that were that ended up not being true, we should take with a huge, huge grain of salt, a huge amount of skepticism, um, and keep in mind sort of where this is all coming from. Um, but. So all of that being said, yeah, the president sort of claimed that this was um, this was a a victory of his because, uh, you know, ahead of these conversations, this one on one conversation that Kim and Trump are supposedly going to have next month or the month after um, that he had sort of scored this victory, which was, again, not what Kim said and kind of played a little bit into Kim's hands because it it sort of said uh, it was sort of like Trump. Um, you know agreeing to uh the deal before the deal was being w- w- was done and sort of taking um the smaller bit of uh, of of uh, of a win uh, before kim was about to say you know and You know, in the next month, I will also get rid of all my nuclear weapons. It's like before before Kim got to that point, Trump said, great deal. We'll we'll take the we'll take this much more narrow, um, uh, uh, this much more narrow offer. So um, he walked it back about 13 minutes later on Twitter and said, of course, nothing's done. Nothing's nothing settled here. Um, But uh, it was it was a bit of a mistake.
0: And uh, other things in the news, uh is, is, is Washington all, all agog about the uh, the visit of the French president uh, to Washington, the, the first state visit of the Trump presidency, uh, President Macron? Uh, Are you like, do you have things planned, JBL?
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm going to bug out as early as possible because the French president is going to be making a trip down 395 to Mount Vernon at rush hour this afternoon, which is going to make everybody who lives in Northern Virginia's life a living hell. And... uh <laughs> I would say if you haven't lived in Washington or Los Angeles, you can't really understand what Washington traffic is like, and uh, it's <laughs> the idea that we're going to run a motor, a, a head of state motorcade out the most important artery of the city at, at rush hour is insanity. And I, I'm sorry, this is like one of my fixations is traffic, and it's really, it's gonna be pretty bad.
2: But it's a good way to stick it to the swamp, you know?
1: I guess it is a good way to stick it yeah, to the swamp. All the, the
2: hard uh... stiffs the swamp. Uh, I I do like, Charlie, the driving down Constitution Avenue, as I did this morning, um, on my way to the office, and seeing the tricolor and the American flag together.
0: That was a nice... It was sort do of... you remember
1: when they were the cheese-eating surrender monkeys, though? Like, I don't understand why there we're are, all soft on are, France I, now. I, they're all
2: I, oldest I allies.
0: Now, now, now they're all cool and muscular and leaders <laughs> of the free world. Yeah, I how don't... don't how that happen?
1: I, I don't think I'm on board with that change. <laughs>
0: um speaking of the, the the swamp uh give me some sense of where where um uh, where Pruitt is in this uh, this this death watch the new york times over the weekend had a very lengthy article which i'm going to confess i read about two-thirds of the way through and again they got lost uh suggesting he's got a long track record of sort of i would say um in, in, in enriching himself indirectly through his office but i i i couldn't actually i couldn't actually swear to that so is 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 is, is the danger past, or or is the is 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 the is the mob still uh, you know uh, after him? Well, the, well the, mob's, the mob's obviously still after him. Are, are they gaining any crown?
2: Yeah. The, well, that's a that's a big question. Here's the biggest problem um, for the for the anti-Pruitt mob, and the biggest uh, uh, thing helping out Pruitt, which is that the administration currently has three cabinet-level appointee or sort of top-level appointee positions. Open that they need confirmation for. There's there's Pompeo who's getting a vote and probably will pass barely this week. Um, there's Gina Haspel, who, the CIA director uh, uh, nominee, who uh, is, is could be in big trouble. And there's uh, the VA uh, secretary, uh, uh, Ronnie Jackson, the uh, White House. Physician who's been nominated—that's um, a lot already. And there's now, at least that
0: one's crashing and burning, though, isn't it? That's
2: that's well, South I don't. Irani. It's it's hard to say. It's hard to say, yeah. and um, uh, I think I, both of those, I think Haspel and Jackson, are in big trouble. Um, but that's three three vacancies right there. That that the the administration is going to have a hard time getting through Senate confirmation. Do they? Does, does the president really want to add another uh, uh, and, and and to something that's so near and dear to the left's heart, the EPA? Um, I think. Um, that's really the only thing that's saving uh, Pruitt here, because otherwise it's just been this drip, 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 I think has really hurt his standing within the White House. Um, and uh, it's 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 not. And, and, and the fact that this is a pattern uh, really makes it difficult. You know, going back to his days uh, in Oklahoma, really makes it difficult to make the case that I think is, has been true. Um, uh, but that uh, that that this is just a witch hunt by uh, the folks at the EPA who really hate this, you know, anti anti climate science you know, guy.
0: Gentlemen, thanks for joining me on this Monday, and hopefully you'll be able to, to uh, beat the traffic later this afternoon. We don't have these problems uh, out here in flyover country because we, we pretty much have, like, rush minutes here in, in Wisconsin, so it is it is not a big deal. And thank you for listening to The Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back again tomorrow.